You're listening to a sermon from Providence Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. For more information about our church, please visit church-kc.com or come and visit on a Sunday morning. Sunday School for All Ages starts at 9 a.m. and our worship begins at 1015. Thanks for listening. I invite you to join me in your Bibles in Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to begin today in verse 15, and we will work our way down to the end of chapter 1. So verse 15 through verse 23. I invite you to follow along with me as I read. Let's read God's Word together. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places." far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all." And all God's people said, Father, what a great privilege it is to stand here and to preach your word to your people. God, I I pray that you would just strengthen me in this moment. Pray that you would enable me to rightly divide your word in this moment. I pray, Lord, that we would all have receptive ears to hear the truth of your word that we would both be encouraged by your word and that we might also be challenged by your word here today. Father, I recognize as I come into this pulpit today, I am weak, I am needy, I cannot, and I must not even attempt to do this in my own strength and my own power. So I pray, Lord, that you would just fill me up and speak through me, that you would allow me to preach in the power of your spirit here today. I pray all of these things in the wonderful and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in the, in the previous section, we looked at last week, the first 14 verses of this letter to Ephesians, Paul, you may remember, was filled with praise and adoration and worship to God for all that God has accomplished for those who are in Christ. If you weren't here last week, we talked about this phrase, in Christ. We find it all over the book of Ephesians. It, it is absolutely critically important for our understanding and interpreting the message of the book of Ephesians. It's so important, in fact, that this phrase, in Christ, 
Sometimes it's in him, sometimes it's in Christ. But this phrase is so important, it's found 11 times in the first 14 verses that we looked at last week. Wow, that's a lot. 14 times in the first 14 verses. That's a clue that that serves as the interpretive key or theme to that section. But it doesn't end there. We find this phrase in total, I believe it is 36 times throughout the entirety of the book of Ephesians. So this idea of being in Christ is hugely, hugely important. Our identity as people of faith in Christ, everything that we are, everything that we hope to be is bound up in this idea that we are in Christ. And so last week, Paul was just filled up with praise and worship and adoration and love towards God as he dwelled on these spiritual blessings that belong to those who are in Christ. He said, just by way of reminder, he said that those who are in Christ have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. They've been purchased out of slavery. Slavery to sin is probably what's on his mind. And the purchase price, the ransom price, was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He said that those who are in Christ have been adopted into God's family, and we are now co-heirs with Christ. And we're receiving this wonderful, rich inheritance that is ours to come, but only because we are in Christ. He said that those who are in Christ have received the forgiveness of an insurmountable sin debt. It's been wiped off the books. And I, I use the illustration of the, the debt of the federal government of the United States of America, which is some $30 trillion. I can't even count the number of zeros that would be in that number, right? I can't even count that high. Certainly, I can't count into the 30 trillions. It's insurmountable. And, and remember, I said, you know, Jesus in his parables, he he compared our sin debt to something that was like that. It was, it was insurmountable. But when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, in the precious blood of Jesus Christ, you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, God pardons us of that sin. He just wipes it away in total, wipes it off the books. Then Paul said that those who are in Christ, they've been marked as God's possession through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I didn't use this illustration last week, but, but it goes here. I think what he was saying is like, you know, God brands us with the mark of the Holy Spirit like a cattle rancher will, will take the, the branding iron and, and brand his cattle and, and mark them. That, that cow is mine. Those cattle are mine. And so that's what God does with us when we are in Christ. He brands us with the Holy Spirit. He marks us as his possession. My aim last week in preaching was to demonstrate to you how Paul was so filled up with worship and adoration and love as he reflected on these great spiritual blessings for those who are in Christ. And of course, his adoration was directed towards God. Well, now in verses 15 and 16, he flips the script just a little bit and he turns to offer praise and thanks specifically for the Christians in the church of Ephesus. So he says in verse 15, for this reason, and I think what he means here is he's connecting back to everything that he just said in the first 14 verses. For all of those things that I just mentioned, Paul says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. I think he's saying, you are in Christ too. So all of these blessings that I just mentioned are yours too. And so for this reason, Paul says, and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And so he, he's thankful 
for these Christians in Ephesus. And first of all, as I just mentioned, he's thankful for them because they are in Christ. He says, because you are in Christ by faith, then all of these wonderful blessings that I just mentioned in the first 14 verses, they belong to you. And he's rejoicing over these people. He is giving thanks for them. And I just want to point out, church, right, we, we should remember this, right? Paul's kind of giving us an example here. We should likewise give thanks for one another, for our brothers and sisters in Christ who have received all of these blessings as well. We should rejoice over them. We should give thanks for them. So take a minute and look around this room at all of your brothers and sisters in Christ and just give thanks to God for them. This is what Paul is doing here. And this leads into, I believe, what he says next. Notice what he also praises them for. He praises them for, quote, their love toward all the saints. Now, if you'd like to mark your Bible, I might encourage you to highlight or mark that word all. Now, it is true sometimes in the Bible when the biblical writer uses the word all, he's being hyperbolic, right? It's hyperbole. It doesn't literally mean all. That, that certainly is sometimes the case, but we have no reason here not to take Paul at his word. It really is striking that he says all the saints. And so at the very least, the, the Christians in Ephesus are demonstrating genuine love to all of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is the way that it should be, beloved. But you and I both know that this is not always the case. It's not always the way that it plays out in the community of believers. And there could be any number of reasons why this could be the case. Sometimes, some people in the community of the church, they, they, sometimes some people have what I like to call shark skin personality. You're from Missouri. You've probably never rubbed up against a shark, have you? Not many of you have. But uh, just in case you don't know, shark's skin is like rubbing up against sandpaper. And, and so sometimes God puts in the church people who have sandpaper personality. They just rub you the wrong way. And when they rub you the wrong way, you may not feel like loving them. So that's, that's one reason. Sometimes whenever you know, God puts people together in a community from different backgrounds, different walks of life, you know, sometimes invariably somebody's going to get their feelings hurt. Somebody's going to offend you. Somebody might sin against you. Somebody might step on your toes. You may not have things work out quite the way that, that you want things to work out. And so when these things happen, you may not feel like loving these people who have offended you. Then sometimes, you know, there are people perhaps in the community of the church who, who maybe be, they might be filled up with a little bit of pride. And, and you know, this happens sometimes as well for any number of reasons. And, and those people are particularly difficult to extend love to. We may not feel like loving them. My point is, church, there could be any number of reasons why we may not feel like extending love to all of the saints. And this is exactly why the Apostle Paul uses the Greek word agape for love. I think I've explained this to you before, but now is a good time to explain it once again. Paul could have used several words, Greek words for love, but he chose the word agape for a reason. Because agape love is volitional love. Agape love is a purposeful love that chooses to love even the unlovely. 
those who make it hard and difficult to love, which of course, church, is the same kind of love that God demonstrates to us. If anyone knows how hard and how difficult it is to love human beings, guess who it is? It is God Himself. We have all offended Him. We have all rubbed Him the wrong way with our personalities at some point in time in our lives. We have all stood in His presence with unfounded pride. And yet the Bible declares, the Bible thunders in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that God so agaped the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Could somebody say amen, preacher? God purposefully and volitionally of His will chose to love the unlovable when He took on human flesh to come to this earth to walk in sinless perfection and to die on the cross as a sacrifice for you and for me and for all who would trust and believe in Him so that we might then become the recipients of all of these wonderful spiritual blessings by virtue of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So now that we are the recipients of these blessings and now that we have received love by a God who loves the unlovable, we too then should love with Christ-like love, agape love. In fact, Jesus says to his disciples on the night of his betrayal, and even though he's speaking directly to those 11, 12 men on that night, I think this still applies to each of us today, to his disciples today. He says to them, a new commandment I give to you, that you love, that you agape one another. Just as I have loved, agape you, you also are to love, agape one another another. So beloved, let me just say this before I move on. I am convinced, just as sure as I am standing here right now in this place behind this pulpit, I am convinced that few things please God more than when we demonstrate genuine agape love, Christ-like love within the church. And Paul is praising them for this here. And remember, Paul's the apostle it's not just his words. He's the human author. This is, these, are, these are also the words of Jesus Christ. It's not just Paul that's praising them for the way in which they are loving one another. This is praise coming from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. So let's, let's take a moment before I move on and let's do a heart check. And let's examine ourselves before the Lord. That's the Lord speaking right there. He's given an amen. And let's, let's ask ourselves, am I loving my brothers and sisters in Christ as Christ loved me? Unconditionally, volitionally, am I deliberately choosing to love all of the saints? Do I love when it is hard to love? Do I love when my feelings get hurt? Do I love when I don't get my way? Do I love when people rub me the wrong way with their shark skin personality? Do I love when people offend me and sin against me? Think long and hard about it, church, and remember that agape love Christian love is not a love that's based on our feelings. 
Your marriage should not be based on your feelings. There are going to be times in your marriage when you don't feel like loving the spouse, right? Your wife or your husband. That, That happens even in my marriage, right? There are times when Alina doesn't feel like loving me. I promise you that. But she does anyway. If our identity is truly bound up in Christ, then we must earnestly seek to fulfill this command. So the Christians in Ephesus are doing this, and they're doing it well, and they're praised for it. Now, Paul also mentions how he always remembers them in his prayers. And as he moves on, he reveals the content of his prayers for them. He says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. He prays continually, you'll notice there, without ceasing, that they would grow in their knowledge and understanding of God. And so church, likewise, we should always be seeking to grow in our understanding of who God is in our knowledge of Him. Don't ever reach a place in your walk with God where where you have arrived at the conclusion where you've learned it all and you know it all. You can read this divine book right here. You can read it for 50 years, forwards and backwards, every day, all day long, seven days a week, and you would never mine all of the wonderful truths. You would never come to know everything that there is to know about this beautiful and wonderful God. So be humble. Never reach a place in your walk with God where you think you absolutely know it all. As a seminary student and then later as a pastor, I have had the opportunity, unfortunately, to encounter several people who I would say have fallen into this category. You just couldn't tell them anything whatsoever. And I'll be honest with you, those are some of the most unloving people that I have ever met. They just get filled up with so much knowledge of God and they think you can't tell them anything. Listen, you can know all of the doctrine that there is to know in the world, but if you have not love, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you are absolutely nothing, just a clanging symbol. So be humble be teachable, cultivate a desire to know God more and more day by day. Now, as he moves on, you'll notice that Paul prays that their knowledge of God will increase in three specific areas. Verse 18, he says, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now, remember something about the context of Ephesians. These Christians have come out of pagan religions that included astral worship. They were looking at the horoscope, that sort of thing. They, they, they looked to the stars and the heavens to try to discern their fate, you know, where the gods, so to speak, were taking them. That's who these people were before they were in Christ. So Paul prays that they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that their future is in the hands of the one true God. The Lord Jesus Christ. It's not in the stars. It's not in the heavens. It's not bound up in magical powers. Their future is bound up in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who determines their future because they are in Him. And the same is true for each of us. If you are in Christ this morning, your future hope is bound up in that truth. Your future hope is bound up in Him. Now, for some reason, I don't know why, the Ephesians apparently needed to remember this great truth. And I think 
it's fair to say that every once in a while, God's people today, we need to be reminded of this as well. Because if we are not careful, church, we can misplace our future hope in something or someone other than our status of being in the Lord Jesus Christ. In our day, it's not so much astral worship. I, I hope none of you are looking at the horoscope. I mean, I sincerely hope that you're not reading the horoscope in the paper. If anyone even still reads the paper, I don't even know. I'm sorry, Karen. I did it again, didn't I? <laughs> I read it online. But don't read the horoscope, all right? Your future hope, she's going to kill me afterwards, is bound up in Christ. By the way, I just want you to know that Karen still writes letters. And I think you are to be commended for that, personally. And she didn't, and she didn't send me an email to tell me that either. Beloved. Your future hope is not in the stars. It's not in the heavens, all right? And sometimes we need to remember this. In our, in our day, the problem is not the horoscope, okay? In our day, if I had to say, sometimes our problem is, is politics. It, it really is. I, I, I've seen Christians get, get worked up uh, and, and be filled with all kinds of, of despair and hysteria when their team loses an election. Let me remind you, church, hey, don't get me wrong. We, we have a right to be involved in the political process, and we should be. But don't misunderstand, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, all right? But understand this. Your future hope is not altered one bit by the resident of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Not one bit. Your future hope is not determined, it's not altered one bit by the party that is in power on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Your future hope is bound up in the unchangeable God of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes, myself included, we need to remember that. Secondly, Paul prays that they may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, this is interesting because it's really easy to read this, is if Paul wants them to understand the riches of their inheritance... And now, to be honest with you, when I, when I first read it, just, just right off the cuff, that, that's how I understood it. And remember, of course, by virtue of the fact that we are in Christ, we are looking forward to a wonderful, rich inheritance. But that's actually not what Paul is saying here. The, the Greek grammar does not allow for such an interpretation. The inheritance that is in view here is God's inheritance. So look at what he's saying. In other words, the saints... The redeemed, the church, we are the riches of God's inheritance. And this makes sense. When we talked about last week, we are the fulfillment, the church, we are the fulfillment of God's predetermined plan from the foundation of the world. We are His long-awaited inheritance. We are His long-awaited treasure. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. Now think about just how incredible that is, church. We're talking about the all-powerful creator God of the universe. He owns it all. He created it all. He owns all the planets. He owns all the stars. He owns all of the precious metals on all of those planets. You know how much gold and silver and uranium and lithium? Lithium is now a precious metal, apparently, in the world in which we live. 
You know how, how much of that stuff is in this world? I don't know. It's unfathomable. God owns it all. All of that wealth, all of those riches. But it all pales in comparison to the value that we have in His eyes. We are His treasure. We are His long-awaited inheritance. So, if you are in Christ this morning, hey, beloved, you need to see yourself this way. You need to understand that you are worth more to God than all of the treasures in the world combined. And he proved it when he stretched out his arms on the cross of Calvary and said, I love you, and I love you this much. Somebody say amen. Amen. Third thing he prays for is this, verse 19, that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power. The, The word for power here is the Greek word dunamis, which I believe is the word from which we get our English word dynamite. So what is the immeasurable greatness of his, his dynamite, right? his dynamite power toward us who believe, those who are in Christ? According to the, the working, the Greek word for working here is energia. Is, we get our word energy from this. So God's dynamite energy is, is what he's praying about here of his great might. So he prays that they would know and comprehend God's dynamite energy, his, his great power. Now again, church, the, the context of Ephesians, I think, is, is very important here for us to understand and unlock what Paul is communicating. These Ephesians live in a, lived in a world filled with competing claims in regards to power. They lived in the Roman Empire. They lived under the thumb of the Roman Empire the most powerful nation on earth at the time, and they would not hesitate to demonstrate that power towards their subjects. So first of all, they're they're subjects of the Roman Empire. But secondly, they lived in a place where there were a lot of competing claims in regards to to spiritual power. The the pagans in this city in Ephesus, they they worshipped over or at least 50 different deities. And, And many of these pagan religions practiced magical incantations, curses, and many other claims of spiritual power. So imagine what that might be like if you had been part of one of those pagan religions, and now you are a Christian, and now you're living in this closed community in Ephesus. You're part of this Christian community. You worship this one God, but you're surrounded by all of these pagan religions and this black magic. What are these people doing? on your behalf. These people who maybe used to be your friends, your co-workers, maybe they're your close relatives, and they're still involved in these, these religions that you use these black men. What are these people doing? We don't know for sure, but I can imagine it's something like this. They don't want you to be in Christ. They want you to come back and worship the God or gods of their fathers. The religion that they've been worshiping, the God that they've been worshiping, for hundreds of years. So what do they do when they practice black magic? Well, they, they might throw a curse on you. They might try to put a spell on you. They might try to have a, some kind of voodoo doll or something and, and pick, prick you with that. So all in the hopes that you would come back to them and leave this thing called the church Christianity. So you could imagine what that would be like if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and all of that is going on around you. Imagine how fearful that might make you. So Paul prays that they would know beyond all doubt 
that God is the one true power of the world. Now, it goes without saying on one hand, but when you live in their context, it needs to be said. They don't need to be afraid of all of these powers of darkness that are swirling around them. They need to trust that God's power is the one true source of power. And this is so important on Paul's mind that Paul now illustrates God's extraordinary power with a reference to Christ's resurrection and his exaltation. So you'll notice in verse 20, he says, this great power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Literally, in the Greek, Paul says that Jesus was, quote, raised out from the dead ones. That, that's what he says in the Greek. Now, don't misunderstand what's going on here. The focus is not so much on the fact that Jesus has been resurrected to life, though that certainly is the case. That is certainly true. But Paul's focus is that Jesus' resurrection was not an isolated event. He's been raised out of the dead ones, which means that Christ's resurrection is an inauguration of the final resurrection. What God did in Christ Jesus in raising him from the dead and out of the dead ones, he will do for all who are in Christ. There's your future. There's your hope. Say amen again. That's what he means. Now, notice he's not only resurrected, but he's exalted to the Father's right hand in the heavenlies. Whenever you see mention of God's right hand, you automatically need to think of God's great power. God is right-handed. He's not left-handed. So sorry for any of you who are left-handed. Sorry, Dan. God is right-handed, okay? That's the, that's the hand of power. And Whenever the right hand of God is mentioned, that's usually what's being communicated there. So Jesus has been resurrected out of the dead ones, and he now stands in this place of honor and of immense power. By the way, in the very next chapter, Ephesians 2, verse 6, you know what Paul goes on to say? To, to encourage these people, he says, and you guys, those of you who are in Christ, you've been resurrected and you are seated with him in the heavenlies at the right hand of God. Don't ask me how that is. Maybe come back next week and maybe I can give you an explanation. But that's what he's, that's what he's communicating here. We have this same power in us. Now he says in verse 21, far above, he's talking about Jesus' power and rule, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Notice how he's stacking terms right on top of one another, rule, authority, power, dominion. He's stacking these, these terms, these words to make a point. And his point is very simple. Even a caveman like me can understand it. You know what it is? Christ's power is total. It's, it's complete. It is unrivaled. It's unmatched. Whatever power exists in this world, whether it's real, whether it's imaginary, whether it's spiritual, or whether it is, is human, whatever power that exists in this world, they are all subject to Jesus Christ because His rule, His power is unrivaled. It is unmatched. He says, then, every name that is named drives home this very point. You know, what, you know what he's saying there? This is what he's saying. He's saying, if there is anything else that you can think of, if there's any other power that you can even you know, put a name on, it doesn't matter. All of that 
it too is subject to Christ's immense power. For the last 30 years and change, the military of the United States of America has been absolutely unrivaled. The, the power of the conventional forces of the armed forces of the United States of America. God bless all of you who have or are currently serving in the armed forces of the United States of America. You have had the privilege to serve in a military force that is absolutely unmatched and unrivaled in the world for the last 30 years. That gap is closing, but for the last 30 years, no one's been willing to touch us. Christ's power is like that, but it is far far greater on a much grander scale. It is unrivaled and it is unmatched. Now he says in verse 22, and he, who is the he? I think the he here is God. And he put all things under his. His would be Christ. His feet. And so everything again is subject to Christ's power and to Christ's rule. And then he says, and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things, and he says to the church. And I take this to mean that Christ is head over all things for the benefit of the church, for the benefit of God's people. In other words, his immense and unrivaled power is working for the good of the church. There is no power in this world that can take that away from those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul says the same thing, but a little differently in Ephesians chapter 8. I know most of you are familiar with this passage. This is one of my, one of my most favorite passages in all of Scripture because it reminds us of exactly what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians. Look at what he says. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who can do that? Or what can do that? Shall tribulation or distress or, or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or, or sword? Can any of that, does any of that have the power to take us away from the love that we find in Christ? Paul says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. If you are in Christ this morning, you are in a power that is unrivaled and is unmatched. Then he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, hallelujah, amen, say it. Amen. Now go home and believe it. Well, you said amen, so you said you believe it. Christ's immense power is for the benefit of the church, securing our future hope. And then in verse 23, he says of the church, which is his body. We talked a little bit about this last week. This goes back to the importance of being in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are part of His body. We are not islands unto ourselves. You know, there's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. I think that's true. Biblically speaking, that's a true statement. And of course, the body is connected to His, his head. We are one integrated whole. The church, His body, and the head, the Lord 
Jesus Christ. Then Paul concludes in verse 23 with a statement that is a, a paradox. He says, the fullness of him. And not everyone agrees on exactly who was filling who, right? Who is the fullness of who here, right? But here's what I understand him to be saying. He says, the, the church, the body, is the fullness of him. We complement him. Christ, remember, the church is God's predetermined plan from the beginning. And now the church is being revealed as the fullness of Christ. I think that's what he's saying. And then he says, to bring it to an end, who fulfills everything in every way. And so to be in Christ, to be in his body, is to be in the one who fills everything in every way. I think we could sum up what he's saying this way. This is another way of saying that, that Christ is the place where God's presence and God's power and God's salvation are known. So to, to be in Christ, again, is to have access to all of those wonderful and beautiful blessings. Everything goes back, once again, to being in Christ. You're either in Christ by faith believing in His death on the cross, believing in His resurrection from the grave for the forgiveness of sin, the promise of everlasting life, you're either in Christ by faith or you are not. And if you are in Christ by faith, then everything, all of these wonderful, beautiful blessings that Paul's been talking about throughout the first chapter of Ephesians, they all belong to you. So, now we come to the end of the text. But now we're not quite at the end of the sermon. Now we have to ask and answer the most important question, which is, so what, preacher? How can we apply this to our lives today? What, what does this mean for me? And the truth is, you know, we, we could give any number of applications. We, we've already hit on a number of applications as we walked our way through the text. But let me challenge you in one specific area. Let me conclude with this. Let me challenge you to incorporate the elements of Paul's prayer here into your own prayer life. I gave you a heads up of this at the beginning of our service. told you you might need to add some things to that prayer list that you have in the bulletin. And when I say that, here's, here's what I really mean. Our prayers tend to be focused on our physical needs. They do. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right? Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It is right and it is appropriate to pray for our physical needs. God wants us to do that. I, I believe that. So that's okay. But let me challenge you that if you're not doing so already, to add to your prayer life some of the elements of Paul's prayer here for the saints in Ephesus. Pray that God's Spirit would enlighten you Open up the eyes of your heart and your soul and your mind to the reality of who He is and what He has accomplished for you. Pray this prayer. Pray it every single day. Pray that you would understand or come to understand it, uh, more full, a fuller understanding of His great love for you and your immense value to him. You're worth more to him than all the gold and silver and precious metals in this world. Pray that you would come to understand that. 
Pray that you would love others as he has loved you with agape love. Pray that you would understand that your hope is bound up in him and in him alone. And that your hope is bound up in his great and unmatched and unrivaled power. Pray these things without ceasing. Paul says, I don't stop praying these things for you. So pray these things every single day. And church, I believe that when you pray these things, I think you'll find that you'll be more apt to fix your hope in him, in Jesus Christ, and in his great love and in his great power. When your hope is fixed there, when your hope is fixed in Christ, you will find that you can rejoice that you can respond with thanksgiving no matter what comes your way. One little detail I've not mentioned to you yet in our study of Ephesians is that Paul writes this letter from prison. And he may very well be nearing the end of his life. He may, in fact, know that he might not live much longer. That the the power of the Roman Empire is going to take off his head or, or hang him on a tree. And yet... Because his hope is fixed in Jesus Christ. Is this a man that is filled with despair? Is this a man who's angry and shaking his fist at God and all the world around him? He's not. This is a man who is filled with worship and adoration unto God. Because he understands that no matter what comes his way, his hope is fixed in the fact that he is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when, when your hope is fixed there, you will find that you can rejoice, you can respond with thanksgiving, no matter what comes your way, and that you will begin to love as Christ loves us. Father, thank you so much for the great privilege that I have to stand here and to preach your word. And I pray, God, that that we would take to heart Paul's attitude of worship here in this first chapter of Ephesians as he dwells on all these great spiritual truths and blessings that, that are for him and for those who are in Christ. And he responds with this worshipful attitude of joy and thanksgiving. I pray that we would adopt the same attitude in our lives. Pray that we would adopt the same type of prayer life into our lives. That we would not only pray for our physical needs, but that we would pray that your spirit would enlighten our hearts and our minds and our spirit, our soul to the truth of who you are, of your great power and your great love for us. I pray, Lord, that we we would learn to, to anchor our hope in you and always in you so that no matter what comes our way in this life, we would always be able to respond in a spirit of thanksgiving and joy. I pray all of these things in Jesus' wonderful and precious name. Amen. I invite you to stand, church. We're going to sing one more song, an invitational hymn. It's a time to respond with praise and thanksgiving and, and worship. Just allow your heart to overflow with joy and thanksgiving if you are in Christ this morning. Just do that. Just be thankful for who He is and what He has accomplished for you.
And then if there's someone here this morning who's never trusted in Christ, if you, if you can't say with certainty that you are in Christ by faith this morning, then I would have you think long and hard about that. And I would encourage you to think about what it means to place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever is on your heart, I would encourage you to come forward this morning as we sing this last song.